Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering getaways to charming Victoria, B.C. with daily flights. Just a quick 45-minute flight from Seattle to Victoria's Inner Harbor, from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. Many workers in Seattle received a pay bump this January when new minimum wage standards went into effect. The change depended on the size of the company you work for. Most got around a dollar more per hour. The new minimum wage arrives at a time when local restaurants are struggling with inflated costs for food and supplies on top of an already slim profit margin. And restaurant workers who make minimum wage... They're facing rising costs, too, including rent hikes while navigating unpredictable schedules and changing customer behavior on tipping. So how is the Seattle restaurant industry surviving this new normal? It's about six weeks since the new wages took effect, and in a few minutes we're going to talk with a restaurant owner and a worker for a gut check on how things are going. First, Seattle Times food writer Jackie Variano covers the Seattle restaurant industry and its ups and downs. Hi, Jackie. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So in Seattle, the minimum wage looks different depending on the size of the restaurant where you work under this law. Can you walk me through the differences? I mean, how does the minimum wage increase actually work? Yeah, so there's been this weird rule, and this is actually the last year that this rule will be in effect. So if you are a business owner and you have 500 or less employees, And um, you can also pay either $2.72 an hour toward medical benefits, or these employees make $2.72 an hour in tips, your minimum wage is $17.25. If you are an employer that has 501 or over employees, your minimum wage is $19.97 an hour, no matter if they're making tips or if they have medical benefits. And you said this is the last year that that's going to be in effect. What what does that mean? What happens after this year? That means after this year, um, everybody is going to pay the same minimum wage regardless of how many uh, employees you have. And it's going to be the 501 employee uh, rate. So there is no difference if you're a small or a large employer anymore. So those smaller businesses are seeing a hike again for next year to catch up with the uh, 19 plus an hour rate. Yeah. So, well, everyone will see a hike again because Seattle's minimum wage actually goes up every year. So the difference is Now, instead of absorbing maybe a 75 cent an hour rate, these small businesses are going to be looking at more like a $3 an hour increase for their employees. Wow. Okay, so that's coming down the line right now for businesses of 500 or less. Again, it's 1725, which is still an increase starting on January 1st. And some people, Jackie, might not have been around when this all got decided Can you catch us up, remind us, what was the fight for 15? How did this all come about politically? The fight for 15 was a decade ago, um, and that's when uh, employees, I believe, from SeaTac went on strike asking for um, a higher minimum wage that was separate than what the state minimum wage is, than what the federal minimum wage is. And Seattle took this upon themselves to do an increase every year. The state of Washington doesn't have an increase every year. 
Yeah, and this was like a big cause for progressive leaders like Shama Sawant and others to really push for Seattle to be out on front on this. Of course, we have the second highest in the country now, Tukwila. As you mentioned, those airport workers were successful in raising it to the highest. Um, but Seattle still is up there when it comes to other big cities. Um, in a recent story for The Times, you focused on how the wage increase is impacting restaurants, owners, workers, customers. What have workers said to you about how this higher minimum wage is changing things for them? You know, I think across the board, these workers are saying that the rise in minimum wage is not is still not enough. And for a lot of them, they would not be working these jobs if tips weren't included. Even for people that are working at restaurants and happen to make above the minimum wage, they're saying that even above the minimum wage, a $22, $23 an hour is still potentially not enough to live in Seattle. Um, I think uh, one of the servers that I spoke with, she kind of likened it to a drop in the bucket, like a five, it would be $5 more a week. Hmm. A 75 cent an hour raise. Um, and she said that when she's looking at getting a job, um, she looks at how much she's going to make in tips. And that is going to determine if she is interested in working at that bar or restaurant way more than what the minimum wage is. Yeah, because for a lot of folks, the tips are making up half, if not more, of their actual take-home salary. Um, and when you do the math, I mean, even at that higher minimum wage, the 1997 an hour for companies with other, over 500 employees, that totals out to just $38,000 a year before taxes. I mean, and rent in this city is $1,800 a month. So drop in a bucket, that is a pretty accurate way to phrase that. What do you hear from workers? I mean, how do they make that work? Do you hear about a lot of restaurant workers having to leave Seattle? I have heard from a couple of restaurant workers having to leave, moving to outlying suburbs. I think also some people are, I don't know if you want to say lucky enough, but they have a partner or they have a roommate that are able to share expenses, which is, um, you know, not something that everybody wants to do as an adult. I think that was always like a big marker of adulthood, right? Is that you no longer needed to have a roommate. You could have a space of your own. So I think that's mm -hmm. something that these workers are struggling with is how to live the life they want while making um, or working full time. And these tips, I think, are a way, you know, if you can bump up your pay to $65 an hour with tips, that's a lot more attractive than 1997. But that's working for tips, which is also not the easiest job anyone's ever had. What are business owners telling you? I mean, how do they manage the extra cost? There's got to be somewhere where they're saving money, right? Oh, I don't think any of them are. I think they wish they were saving money, but I think it takes a lot of um, time and planning because it's a delicate balance. What do you do? Do you raise menu prices? Because you can't raise them too much. Do you find a way to cut costs at a time where everything feels like it's getting more expensive from takeout containers to ingredients? I mean, um, you know, you can only cut so many shifts or make so many increases before people are just going to stop coming, I guess, or something is going to suffer. And so I think restaurant owners as well are having a struggle to figure out how to make the math math. Um, 
in a time when they don't feel like they have an extra penny to spare. Is there a breaking point in the industry, Jackie? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people that make a lot of money in Seattle, but there are a lot of people who are, you know, truly middle class or lower income. And I can't remember the last time I went out to eat and I didn't pay, you know, $25 for my meal at dinner, usually more if I'm going to somewhere sit down. And eventually it feels like we're going to get to this breaking point where people are just cutting eating out out of their budget because it's too expensive, except for the wealthiest folks in our community. Is there a point at which the restaurant industry in Seattle suffers as a whole because of this cycle of rising costs, rising rents and rising labor costs? I mean, sadly, yes. I feel like something's got to give, right? And what is it? You, you talk about $25 out to dinner. I picked up two banh mi sandwiches and it was $30 earlier this week. And that was lunch. You know, that was like a counter serve lunch. But um, And banh you know, mi are, you know, typically more of a budget item. Yeah, you would think it might be more of a budget item. But um, I think that's where we all just decide to make different choices. You know, maybe like maybe lunch is now my luxury and I make more dinners at home and maybe restaurants um, have to make shifts like that where we see hours being different. We see things closing earlier or, um, you know, there is no magic bullet. There's no right answer, unfortunately. And I think that's the strangest thing about the restaurant industry too, is every restaurant is so unique in how they make things work and how they make it all happen that it's not, that simple to say this is what's going to save it or this is what's going to make it easier. Yeah, you talk about restaurants being different. I mean, I see some going for that service charge, right, that adds, you know, 20 percent on every single bill. And then they say you don't have to tip, but there's still a tip line. And I still feel weird leaving that empty. I mean, what's the benefit of that approach versus staying with the old tipping system? How do they navigate that? Well, you know, I talked to Ethan Stoll about that. He's one of the restaurateurs that a lot of his full service restaurants have gone to that service charge. And in his viewpoint, it's guaranteeing wages for his staff is how he sees it. He sees it as it's a full on 22%. And that is guaranteeing that his staff is making a certain amount and that their wage isn't determined on if somebody got their food within a certain time frame. Um, And that's how he's handling, I think, a lot of the increases is taking that extra, you know, income that people rely on from tips and making it standardized, whether that's right or wrong. I I don't I can't answer that. But that's what seems to be working for him. He's also getting a lot of complaints, though, from customers. Right. I mean, you reported on on him saying that there was kind of this increase in people grumbling about the the price. And I don't know, I feel like it's kind of psychological when folks see the baseline price higher, even though they don't have to tip on the back end, their expectations are sort of upended. Like that baseline menu price being so much higher makes them upset. Totally. Well, and I think he already has walked that back in some of his counter-serve restaurants like Rubenstein's, Um, you know, because there, there is... I don't know if it's a power issue or what, but people definitely want to be able to make that decision. 
um, regardless of how they feel about tipping or wages. Jackie Mariano, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to talk with you about eating out and um, something that a lot of us do for fun. You are able to cover this for a living and provide such great perspective. So thanks a lot for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much. This was great. Jackie Variano writes about food and the restaurant industry for the Seattle Times. By the way, a ballot measure to raise the minimum wage in Renton to about 19 bucks an hour is leading based on early returns this week. Ballots are still being counted. Coming up, how are restaurant owners and workers juggling all these industry pressures? We'll hear from them next on Soundside. Stick with us on KUOW. Welcome back to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. We're getting an update today on the restaurant industry in Seattle since a new higher minimum wage went into effect on January 1st. How are workers and restaurant owners navigating rising costs? We're going to get a small business and a labor perspective on this. First up, Shota Nakajima is the owner of Taku, a Japanese-style karaage chicken restaurant on Capitol Hill. And he's also a familiar face if you like cooking shows like Top Chef, Beat Bobby Flay, and Iron Chef. Hi, Shoda. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi. How are you doing? Nice to meet you. Great to meet you. Thanks for being here. How has the increased minimum wage affected your business so far since it increased on January 1st? You know, I think in general, I would say from COVID and after, uh, not just wage, just overall in fluctuation from cost of goods to um, labor to, you know, the reality of living wage in Seattle is a lot more expensive than it was pre-COVID. So you, you have to pay your people a lot more as a business, which I guess the overall hard balance I see is dining out now is a lot more expensive, which is not as accessible for people, which is slowing down restaurants in general. You know, I think the the balance of how it just kind of works out in society is really trying to figure its balance out. And it's a it's a tough time in general. Yeah. I mean, as a business owner, I imagine you have choices, right? So if the cost of wages is going up. You have inflation, the cost of, you know, your ingredients is going up. Rent is high in Seattle unless you own the building. So you have to make choices, right? That there has to be somewhere that gives. You either have to raise your price to the customer or you have to make significant cuts to like the quality of what you're providing. I mean, how do you make that choice? What are your what are you doing as a business owner? I'm adapting every day is the reality of it. You know, it's so different. And, you know, I really try to understand it from uh, the other side of view, right? Your rent is more expensive. Going grocery shopping is more expensive. So if your favorite restaurant that you used to be able to get a sandwich for for $12 is $18, you're already on a tighter budget in general. So, man, I just see it being um, being a little bit of a tough time for the next few years. And I think right now, a few things we're, we've been really trying to implement as a business is, you know, how we structure our chip structure making sure each employee is guest interacting. Um, there is no like back of the house, front of the house, really. And just, I guess, at the end of the day, I think it's one of those things that all of us are going to learn as we grow and watch each other and learn from each other and try to get stronger. So it sounds like you're still uh, going with a tip model at Taku. Um, but you talked about kind of increasing the number of people who are interacting with customers Talk to me about that. Why is that? For folks who aren't in the industry, can you kind of explain the importance of that? For example, a closed restaurant kitchen concept where the back of the house isn't interacting with guests directly. 
Um, you can't be part of the tip pool. You can be part of a tip out system where, you know, a lot of restaurants will do 35%. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of, you know, front of the house people who are more used to tipping out 10%. So they look for restaurants that are still doing 10%. And it's kind of, you know, that that balance is hard. So my restaurant, what it is, it's, it's an open kitchen. Every employee is saying hello to guests and, you know, being able to clear their table, drop food off. Um, so there is no back of the house in front of the house. So I'm able to tip everyone equally, mm. you know, and at the same time, I guess as a business model, how I'm trying to survive through that is, okay, what can I cut out? For example, we are really based on a tip pool system. So if I have eight people working, trying to split $400 of tips, you know, everyone's walking with $50 a night. If I can systemize and outsource, hey, this company makes sauces for us. My cost is going to be 10% higher, but... Um, I guess substituting that for the labor consistency, but more importantly, um, the employees being able to operate it with seven people. So now they're splitting $400 with seven people. So for me, I have been going through massive adjustments, trying to figure it out. It's a daily, daily hard thing. And I think a lot of restaurant uh, owners are going through it right now. So I think that's that's kind of the base of tipping systems that we're all trying to figure or tipping or, you know, just fair pay that we're all trying to figure out. Yeah. Is there anything else, Shota, that you think people should know about difficulties in the restaurant industry right now beyond the cost of labor? Is it really inflation? Is that number one? What else is going on? You know, I think the reality is it's it's very hard for restaurants to make money right now. Um, even pre-COVID, if you have 10%, you're doing pretty well as a business. You know, let's say you have a $100,000 business that you're running. And you make 10% if you're having a good business that's structured correctly. That's $10,000. If your water heater breaks on a Saturday, you have to replace it. You're going to get charged like $25,000 for that because it's a Saturday and a weekend. Or you have to close Sunday because Sunday is going to, you know, it's the weekend. It's just the restaurant's gods will not close it on a Monday when they're available. Yeah, that water heater does not break on a Monday, of course. No, it doesn't. It's, it's always Saturday around 7 o'clock. But anyways, you know, those costs are all involved. And now that number is harder to hit. So I think at the end of the day, you know, talking to a lot of restaurant owners and this, I think making sure that morale is staying up is, you know, one of the hardest things that we all have to be conscious of, especially as, you know, owners and leaders of the business, trying to ensure that everyone can kind of see that goal. Because, you know, it's hard when you put everything that you have and you just don't make money for a long time. Yeah. So. I'm hoping that, you know, like at the end of the day, it's anything that's hard is just something that we all have to figure out. And I think as a society, yeah, it's it's a hard time right now. But when you can afford it, try to support small businesses, go out there, maybe tip a little extra if you can um, and try to help out. I think that would be the biggest thing that I would say. If you can, I'd appreciate it. What's the most exciting thing for you on the menu right now at Taco? Ooh, my most exciting thing is um, I love the mochi cheese. It's like a potato gnocchi with mochi flour, and it's got cheese in the middle and fried and tossed in butter soy sauce. It's all the yumminess. All right. All right. I'm sold on that. <laughs> Shoda Nakajima is the owner of Taku on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much for joining us, Shoda. It's really great to talk with you. Nice to meet you. So we heard how one small business owner is navigating inflation and rising labor costs. 
What about the folks who are actually seeing a change in their paycheck with the new minimum wage? The folks on the front lines of customer service who hear all about raised menu prices, shrinking portions, or shorter hours. My next guest works at a large restaurant group in Seattle, and she wishes to remain anonymous so she can speak freely and protect her job. So, anonymous hourly employee, hi, and thank you for doing this. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here. What did you see on January 1st when the new minimum wage took effect? In my specific shop, the minimum wage increase came alongside a a menu price change. I I do want to be clear that the menu price change wasn't a direct result of the uh, minimum wage increase. It was something that's been talked about for quite a long time, but the decision was made for the menu price increase to occur at the same time. Also, in January, generally, restaurants experience a dip in sales. Um, It's just something that happens every year. So for me, as a worker in a restaurant, I definitely saw a dip in my pay. It wasn't drastic, um, but it was larger than the average year-to-year difference that I see on in the winter months or the post-holiday months specifically. Our customers are generally pretty upset about the menu price increase. It was somewhat drastic, uh, the, the menu price. Yeah. So people saw that menu price jump and they responded by, what, tipping less? Did you see a fewer people coming into the shop overall? Why did your wages decrease? Yeah, I would say that um, a lot of our customers were upset about the menu price increase. And most of the time when prices are increased in the restaurant business, the hourly employees are the ones who get the brunt of the criticism for that. Many people threatened to not come back anymore. A lot of them didn't, um, as well as a lot of people did tip less um, and also explicitly told us that because of the higher prices, they would tip us less. Mm. That must be so hard because obviously that's out of your control. Yeah, I mean, it is difficult. Um, We offer the contact information of people within um, higher levels of the company for customers to reach out to if they have comments or concerns about things like the menu price change, but more often than not, um, people refuse to take that information. Um, It is something that can be really mentally and emotionally taxing when you're there to provide the best service that you can possibly provide for people, especially when you really care about the work that you're doing. You want to provide good service. You want the food to be good. You want people to have, you know, a good time and for it to feel special when you go out to eat. So in return to be treated pretty poorly, not by everybody. There are a lot of really, really great customers. Um, but, you know, the bad ones do kind of, they're the ones that you take home with you at night. Yeah. And yeah, it can become very taxing. I think for some people, it is something that, causes them to leave the industry. Um, and I think with the the increased minimum wage is something that we appreciate in terms of, like, we're not as dependent on tips to make wages to pay our bills, but the increased minimum wage is just not enough. And there's so many other factors that contribute to how, how, how much money we have, essentially. When you're talking about a minimum wage of $20, it is um, about a $38,000 a year take-home um, if you're working full-time. 
Um, obviously, restaurant hours and, and cafe hours are not always uh, dependable. Things can get cut. Things can, you know, close early. But on average, you know, how big of an impact do tips make for you? Like how much over that 38000 are tips bringing you? Tips are a huge part of our paychecks. I would say that on average, from the, the, the $20 an hour, we would make like 8 to 10 on top of that. So at 28, 28 um, an hour per year, it would be close to like, what, 58 or so, 58,000. So it's a huge increase. So it's more than a third of your income, but it's also something that can change based on customer mood, based on decisions from upper management. Um, so it's not exactly, you know, the dependable income stream that you would need, obviously, to feel comfortable. Um, how do you make it work in the city of Seattle with such a high cost of living? Um we keep it tight. Uh, we keep our budgets tight. Yeah. When you're working for minimum wage in a city like Seattle, where everything is expensive, um, you have to run a really tight budget. I myself have, you know, someone that I live with who pays half of the rent. Um, and a lot of my coworkers also have roommates. I think almost everybody lives with another person. A lot of people are living in one bedroom apartments with, with roommates. And one of those people is like sleeping in the living room. Um, in order to have some separation. But that's kind of what it's been taking for a lot of minimum wage workers in the city to be able to like have a place to live um, when you're making, you know, and I also believe that I'm making a pretty high wage for someone who's in the position that I'm in within the restaurant industry. Um, so we're actually on the high end of, um, of wages. Mm -hmm. And that's just because we have really great customers. We're located in an area where people tend to tip more, but that's just not true across the board for the city. What do you wish people knew about the higher minimum wage and how they experience it as customers? You know, the higher price, they get a little frustrated. Maybe they think, eh, I was going to tip $5. I'm going to tip a dollar. What do you wish people knew about this whole situation? Well, I think that it's a little unfair to put that responsibility on customers. I think that, of course, we would ask that people treat us with grace um, and understand that we're all dealing with these struggles together. But at the same time, at no point do me or my coworkers feel as though it's the customer's responsibility to pick up the slack that is found elsewhere. The slack isn't all on the restaurants either, especially small businesses like restaurants that have a single location, um, things like that. I, I would like for customers or just anybody who is interested in the minimum wage debate um, to just have an understanding that we are all struggling with inflation. We are all struggling with the complexities of the current state of the economy and what minimum wage workers and minimum wage restaurant workers want is better material conditions. Um, it's not all about the dollar amount. We need money to pay for basic necessities, um, things like health care, things like rent, everything that you need to survive. And so that that's really what we want is we want better material conditions. And there's many ways that we can get that. Part of that is for the places that we work for to offer affordable health care. And also, yeah, just that for people to understand that minimum wage restaurant workers are not asking for 
only money. Mm-hmm. Money is just currently the only thing we're being offered. So does that take a change in the industry? Does that take legislation, you know, at the city or the state level? Yeah, I I do think so. I think that a lot of the issues that minimum wage workers in the city across the board, not just in restaurants, a lot of the issues that we face are issues that could be mitigated by the state. A lot of that is things like social services, um, Services don't degrade in the same way that your buying power does. We're able to continue to get services without them having to degrade, without it needing to be higher wages, higher wages, higher wages. The answer can be more within a social and societal place offered by the state. That would make a major difference. If we had much cheaper health care provided by the state, then the restaurants wouldn't need to provide us with health care. And our my healthcare through um, through the restaurant is pretty expensive, um, and that is also cutting um, into my paycheck quite a bit. Yeah. So basically, there are ways for local and state governments to support the restaurant industry besides just mandating a higher minimum wage. There are ways in which you know you could see more support for minimum wage workers through these. Um, types of benefits, like a cheaper health care plan offered. Um, and I think that's important to point out, that it's not just a, a single solution. Um, and often the minimum wage is often the more minimal effect on your lives as workers at, at a restaurant, and that there are these other ways that, you know, you could see your lives improved and your working conditions improved. Is there anything else anonymous that you want to add about the minimum wage increase or what the restaurant industry and workers are facing right now overall? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot to say about this argument. It's one that's been going on for a very long time, going back to the $15 an hour minimum wage debate. And to be clear, the the debate is whether or not to raise the minimum wage? Yeah, so the debate is whether or not to raise the minimum wage and whether or not restaurant workers deserve to have a certain dollar amount per hour. I think those are two separate debates, but they're kind of relating to the same thing. And part of that thing has to do with whose responsibility is it for people who work for minimum wage to be able to afford to live in the city they work in. I think that a lot of the times the debate gets put into these two camps of, oh, it's the restaurant owner's responsibility to pay their employees enough to have a livable wage to live in this city. And then on the other side, it's, oh, well, restaurant workers should just make better decisions. They should get better jobs or more education, um, things like that, make better spending decisions or budgeting. But I think the thing that is often missing from the debate is we live in a society that is not controlled by restaurant owners, and we live in a society that is not controlled by restaurant workers. And as everything when it comes to our ability to live in a city, in an inexpensive city, is not on any individual. The responsibility for having a livable city is not on any individual business owner. It's not on any individual restaurant worker. There are a lot of other solutions to those problems. And at least in my opinion, those solutions are things that come from the government. Um, Nobody who is a part of the two sides of that debate, have the ability to make 
grand material changes for people in the city. Yeah, because you hear from business owners saying, my margins are very tight and there isn't a lot of wiggle room when you see the cost of labor going up through the minimum wage. Other things have to give, like reducing hours, maybe staffing a restaurant with fewer people, um, you know, cutting costs in terms of the ingredients that you're buying. Um, But you're saying that we have to look at system-wide changes. Yeah, exactly. System-wide changes are the way to make everybody happy, honestly. What kinds of strategies have you seen from businesses to cut costs to keep up with not only the rising labor costs because of the minimum wage, but also inflation? Yeah, so there have been some changes that I've personally seen within the restaurant that I work at, as well as kind of just across the board within the restaurant industry. Um, And there's been a decrease in ingredient quality. Um, Ingredients have become exponentially expensive, especially post-COVID. And there has been a reduced quality in the ingredients that are being purchased, as well as a lot of restaurants, mine included, are running uh, smaller staffs. Um, It makes it much more difficult to have a smooth flowing service to be able to provide customers with the level of care and respect and attention that you want to give them because you're focused on too many other things at the same time. Anonymous, thank you so much for your perspective and for sharing your experiences. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I hope we can keep the conversation going. Thank you for joining us. All right, thank you. Minimum wage! Thanks for listening to SoundSide. This show is only possible because listeners support us. If you're able to give right now, please check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.